In our series on the book of Esther, we have been reminded that the name of God is not actually mentioned in its ten chapters. And yet there are clear evidences of his presence and his sovereign control of people and events. His fingerprints are, as it were, found throughout the book. Now before looking in detail at the chapter for our study this morning, it may be helpful to just take a stand back for a moment and look again at the general setting for this intriguing Old Testament story. Looking back at the history of the period 600 to 400 BC, there were two dominant world powers of that era. First, the Babylonian Empire, and then its successor in 539, the Persian Empire, which came to power under Cyrus. The Persian Empire was to continue for some 200 years until the rise of Alexander the Great in 334 BC. Now, throughout the two centuries we are interested in, there were numerous significant people, among them several of the biblical prophets whose names were given to books in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Haggai, Zechariah, and then finally Malachi. Now, the Persian Empire was quite extensive spreading from Greece on the left of the slide right across to the border of India. It was an enormous area, taking in many different nations, different cultures, languages and beliefs. The capital of the Persian Empire was Susa, which was uh, east of the city of Babylon. Jerusalem was some 1,200 kilometres west of Susa. Now, if we impose a map of modern Middle East countries, we see that the Persian Empire embraced what we know as the countries of Turkey, Egypt, Israel, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan and Pakistan. Now, on our news today, we are reminded constantly of the tensions and struggles between those various nations. And probably there were similar challenges faced by the Persian authorities of long ago. Returning now to our history timeline, as well as the significant people that we just mentioned, there were several significant events that fitted into that 200-year period. In 586 BC, Jerusalem was overthrown by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And many of the Jewish people were taken away as exiles to live in that distant foreign land. But when Cyrus defeated Babylon, he showed a kindly attitude to the conquered peoples and he gave the exiled Jews the opportunity to return to their homeland under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Those who did return found it hard going to re-establish themselves back in Jerusalem. 
In fact, it took them over 20 years to rebuild the temple. Then in 458 BC, another group of exiles in Babylon returned to Jerusalem with Ezra as their leader. Then a third group under Nehemiah followed about 25 years later. However, the total of the three groups who returned to their homeland was far less than the number who were forcibly removed in 586 BC. Many of the Jewish folk of that time chose to remain in the foreign country. Now, why did they do that? Hadn't God actually given them the promised land? And what did they do in those foreign places? Well, there's much we don't know, but the divine fingerprints can be traced. Now, some of them long to return home and grasp the first opportunity to do so. But others settled in the new environment. They adopted the ways of the new culture and they forsook their faith in God. Now, among the earliest Jews to be deported to Babylon was Daniel along with his friends. They stayed in that country, but they maintained their faith in God and they committed themselves to his care and to his service with some surprising outcomes. Then later we are introduced to a man and his younger cousin who lived in Susa, capital of the Persian kingdom. They too maintained their faith in God and committed themselves to his care and to his service. And again with surprising outcomes. Yes, God had chosen a people for himself and he said to Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We wonder how that promise could be fulfilled. The people had lost their land. The temple had been destroyed and its replacement seemed quite inadequate. So where was God? And what of those promises? The Old Testament prophets we mentioned earlier wrote of a Messiah who would come from the line of David. How could that happen? Well, with such questions in mind, we turn to chapter 5 of Esther. We've already met the main characters in the story, Xerxes, a party-prone Persian king. Mordecai, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, a faithful follower of God. There was Esther, his younger cousin whose parents had died and who was now the unexpected queen of the entire realm. And then Haman, power-hungry schemer, who was a descendant of the Amalekites, who were constant and ruthless enemies of the Jews. Chapter 5 itself has two main paragraphs, verses 1 to 8, dealing with Esther's request to the king, and then verses 9 to 14, telling us about Haman's rage against Mordecai. So our study this morning has four parts, an introduction, then the chapter itself with its two paragraphs, 
and then a brief conclusion. The action in today's passage is the result of strategic preparation set out in chapter 4. And last week, Neil Davies pointed out that Mordecai put a strong challenge to Esther. The Jews were threatened with death. She must appear before the king on their behalf. Let's read again her response in chapter 4, verses 15 to 17. Read them together with me from the screen. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Esther had carefully considered Mordecai's challenge, and she sought help from friends who shared her concerns. Now, such fasting was often accompanied by specific prayer. In preparing her response, it seems that Esther was aware of two guiding principles, careful consideration of key issues, not just personal wants or fears, and then complete commitment to God's purposes, even if the details were not clear. Now, whatever eventuates in chapter 5 and beyond develops from these two basic principles. We note here also that Esther becomes the leading character in the story, taking over, as it were, from Mordecai. It was Mordecai who gave the challenge to Esther about her role in these things. But the chapter ends with Mordecai carrying out all of Esther's instructions. There's nothing here about so-called gender equality. Personal ambition was not an issue. Both Mordecai and Esther were committed to God's purposes. Their mission was to trust and obey him. Well, we come to chapter 5 and the first paragraph, Esther's request to the king. Now, this paragraph itself can be divided into two parts. First, verses 1 to 5, Esther appears uninvited before the king. The opening verses here tell us of Esther's bold initiative to make a direct approach to the king. It was against the law to do that and the punishment was death. But Esther had planned carefully during the days of fasting and prayer. We read in the first few verses of chapter 5 that on the third day of fasting and prayer, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace face in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. 
when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come together today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. Surprisingly, the king invited Esther into his presence and asked her to make her request. Now, the offer of up to half the kingdom uh, was a saying of the time which was intended to show the king's generosity. It would not necessarily be taken literally. And then again, surprisingly, Esther makes her response but seems to evade the imminent danger faced by her people, the Jews. Her plan is for a party for the king and for Haman, that wicked schemer who would plan to kill all the Jews throughout the entire kingdom of Persia. And we wonder what's going on here. The author of the book tells the story, though, with great skill. This party had a purpose. And the author wants us to see the fingerprints of God in these unfolding events. Although neither Esther nor we can actually discern what God is doing. So there was purposeful planning on Esther's part with a strong element of faith. By contrast, we may wonder how the king of such a vast empire found time to attend so many parties. Second paragraph, verses 5 through to 8. Esther's banquet for the king and Haman. In these verses, we see what happened at the party. The guests seemed to have a great time. We continue reading from verse 5. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favour, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfil my request, Let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Now we may have wondered about Esther's plan to have the first party. 
But now we're quite surprised of her plan to have another one the very next day. This lady knew how to score points with a king who loved parties and was fond of attractive women. And Haman would be blown away by the publicity he would get at his press conference when he announced that he would be tending another exclusive function with the king. But remember, Esther had carefully considered the key issues. She was completely committed to God's purposes. She undertook purposeful planning. God was up to something. And Esther did not know what it was. But the time was not yet right. And I suggest to you that the author wants us to see here that this was a time for persistent patience, waiting for God's time. Well, that's the first part of this paragraph. Now the second part of the chapter, 9 to 14. Haman's rage against Mordecai. And here Mordecai comes back into the story. He too had been waiting, waiting at the king's gate. But the very sight of him there made Haman mad. We read from verse 9. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits, but when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, he restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honoured him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to a banquet she gave. And she has invited me, along with the king, tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up, reaching to the height of 50 cubits, that is 23 metres, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the pole put up. The author gives us a penetrating insight into this proud, arrogant, cruel and scheming court advisor who was held in high esteem 
by the party-loving king of the world power of that day. As we stop and think, think of people in places of power and influence in our own day, uh, we might think of some who remind us of Haman or perhaps Xerxes. In an earlier day, one who was a leader of God's people and known for his wisdom wrote, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be lowly in spirit and among the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. He also wrote, An angry man stirs up dissension and a hot-tempered one commits many sins. A man's pride brings him low but a man of lowly spirit gains honour. In the New Testament, James quoted Solomon, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Did it work out like that in Esther's day? Well, we're going to have to wait and see. But we do remember these warnings of the peril of pride. It always leads to a fall. Well, what's the outcome of these events? Chapter 6 begins with some interesting words. That night, the king could not sleep. So there's more to this story and we must wait for it to unfold. Uh, But what is there in this chapter that we can grasp this morning? The author does not mention God by name, yet he brings these dramatic scenes before us to make us think about how such things could happen. They were never coincidences. They were always poor, purposeful and under control. And we're led to recognise that the hidden hand of the Almighty is at work. God is there. Now at the close of chapter 4, by way of introduction, we noted Esther's basic principles. And these can be helpful for us. Careful consideration of key issues not just personal wants or fears. And then complete commitment to God's purposes, even when the details are not clear. And then as the chapter itself unfolded, Esther's helpful guidelines for her action, purposeful preparation first, Planning, 
with a strong dimension of faith. I don't know, but I trust the God who does. And then patient persistence, waiting for God's time. In contrast, Haman's self-centred responses warn us of the peril of pride. It always leads to a catastrophic fall. So here are useful pointers for us as we make our way through life as God's people. No wonder the king could not sleep that night so long ago. The almighty God was at work bringing to pass his purposes for his people. The Old Testament prophets we noted earlier told of a coming Messiah who would establish God's kingdom far greater than the Persian kingdom ever was for his kingdom would spread across the entire world. Now as we move into a new year it's appropriate for us to stop for a moment and remember our commitment to our God and our Father. His fingerprints are now on our lives. Both Esther and Mordecai, their mission was to trust and obey God. Is that for me too? It was Jesus himself who taught us to pray in the words that are on the screen. You know them well. It talks about God's kingdom and its coming and our needs but his ultimate glory. So as we close this morning would you mind standing? We'll stand together and we'll pray together. And as the two principal characters we were thinking of this morning Their mission was to trust and obey God. And in this prayer, as we pray it together, may that be our commitment, our renewed commitment, as we step out into a year and we don't know the details. So let us pray, beginning with the words, Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Folk, thank you for coming. Remember next week it's chapters 6 and 7. There are notes available on the printed notes on the table as you leave if you would like to take a copy. And thank you for the team at the back for their assistance. May God encourage us all. Amen.